Welcome to Third Spacing, a podcast that scales honest conversations to design human-centered health systems. In the first of this two-part episode, we talk to Hazira Mohammed, a public health PhD student at the University of Toronto. She's the author of Kita de Chukot Manis, Resisting the Bitter Pill of Racialized Framing on the Malay Community, from Brown is Redacted, an anthology of essays on race in Singapore. We discuss the uses of race in medicine particularly, and what cultural competence means. Hi, my name is Hazira. I go by she, her. I'm currently a PhD student at the School of Public Health in the University of Toronto. And my research is connected to resource allocation and end-of-life care. My background, briefly, I was from the Malay Studies Department at the National University of Singapore. I did both my bachelor's and master's thesis in the department. And both revolve around stereotypes in the Malay community and youth delinquency in Singapore. So I came into the public health space via what can be seen as an unconventional route. And so that has informed and shaped many of the ways that I think about public health. And that's why I write the way that I write. I'm very happy that there's a community of healthcare practitioners in Singapore who are interested in the social dimension of medicine. And very much looking forward to our conversation today. Thanks for your excellent introduction. So part of the reason why I knew about Hazira's work is the essay that she wrote in Brown is Redacted, which is known as Gita Dachuko Manis, a resisting the bitter pill of racialized health framing on the Malay community. As a healthcare practitioner, sometimes I also get quite uncomfortable with the way that race is portrayed in medicine. Like a couple of years ago, there was this newspaper, Straits Times headline, Malay Muslim community is the most unhealthy population in Singapore. And it seems like this is also replicated in medical education. And I do wonder what the implication is on the kind of care that I can give to my patients, especially those who are already from a disadvantaged background. So maybe before we go into public health, you can give us like a brief, broad overview of your research on Malay issues and how things could potentially be framed. Yeah, I'm very conscious of the audience that we have. (laughs) And I want to start with the caveat that I understand that race is a very potentially sensitive topic and a lightning rod here. Unfortunately, the discussion became very polarized, right? It became us versus them. Issues such as Chinese privilege came up and then there was the sentiment that a particular community felt attacked by members of the minority who were trying to vocalize their hurt or the trauma of being subject to racism. So let's just start with a very simple premise. Race has been established as a social and not biological construct. Of course, there are differing opinions about this, but by and large, the literature has been established. It's a social, not biological construct. However, the effects of racism is not a construct. It's very much real, the effects of racism itself. So you need to distinguish between race and racism, which I feel we have not reached in Singapore because our discourse can be so shallow. I used to be a teacher in a secondary school in Singapore. And the reason why our discourse is at that level is because many of us are exposed to the issue of race and racism from the perspective of Racial Harmony Day. And the examples that we are usually given is the racial riots and how if we are not careful, it can devolve into a situation where we all are at each other's throats. 
And therefore, we must always carefully manage race or issues around racism to maintain the harmony. And I understand that mentality because it's something that shouldn't be talked about cavalierly, right? But if your discourse remains at that level of we are always under threat, you also instill fear in people to start confronting their own biases in everyday life. So it's exactly what you mentioned just now. How are we being taught to think about the other ethnic groups in Singapore? Why are headlines such as Malays are the unhealthiest community or stereotypes about various cultural groups acceptable? On one hand, right, we are very careful. We tiptoe, we dance around race when we talk about the issue in school or in the office or in whichever setting. But then when it comes to spotlighting certain communities, we can bring up the worst stereotypes and we seem to think it's okay. I argue in my chapter, right, that part of why Singapore is such a hyper-racialized society is because we all have been conditioned around the CMIO model. And many other wonderful scholars have talked about it before me, the impact of the CMIO or the Chinese Malay Indian other model in setting up our society to think about ourselves in silos. So in a way, when it's convenient, we are exhorted to think about ourselves as Singaporeans first. But when it comes to certain issues in which the government believes some communities need to take more ownership than others, we default to the CMIO model. We have very fixed ways of thinking about particular ethnic groups that's inherited from even the colonial period. And we never seem to progress from that. And I wonder why. Because our education system is one of the best ways to grapple with these issues. But there seems to be a fear of genuinely engaging with how come we can't think out of silos and we think about particular ethnic groups and that's something I really wanted to problematize in my chapter and I hope I have done it convincingly yeah thanks for that overview I'll just tell our audience what this Kita Dachuko public health campaign is la. Kita Dachuko manis itself means we are sweet enough like we don't need more sugar which I guess is trying to allude to the fact that diabetes is more prevalent among the Malay community. So basically, there have been multiple slogans spearheaded to be more conscious about the ways that the so-called Malay ways of living is responsible for cardiovascular diseases. And the problem with Kita Dachukot Manis is that it's very simplistic in the ways that we view health. Is that, oh, Malay equals to unhealthy food equals to increase rates of diabetes. Maybe you can share first about your thoughts of these public health campaigns and how this framing could potentially influence health outcomes. Yeah, thank you for bringing the campaigns up. So the initial reaction as somebody who's Malay is to cringe, right? I begin my chapter with dadah itu haram or drugs are forbidden, like it's in Islam, right? And a number of friends and I have always laughed at this because we have the privilege to be able to laugh at it because it's not targeted at us. But who doesn't know that drugs are haram, right? Who doesn't know excessive sugar is bad for you? And what you mentioned earlier was absolutely right. There are certain social factors that influences outcomes that makes a certain population or certain person even more prone to chronic diseases. 
But there seems to be a lack of appreciation in the framing of these issues and the fact that health is made up of interrelated social determinants of Having received the training that I did, I know the lived experiences of, of Malays who had to, who were subjected to these campaigns, who had to read this in the news, who had to hear from our politicians about our cultural deficiency. Um, they are the people who are very much attuned to how the issue has been framed on them or on us. Right? And I consider myself, of course, part of the Malay community. Even if you don't go to the academic framing of like, yeah, racialized narratives about our community, the people on the ground feel it. We are assaulted, I would say, with messages of like, reduce your sugar. We're just trying to enjoy your time at the Bazaar Ramadan in Geelang, you know. And you're probably drinking something sweet because, you know, a celebration, right? And then you get like a kurangkan money. So what does it mean that this is how we target a community? In our public spaces, right? Much of it has got to do with the cultural deficiency narrative. That there's something wrong with our culture that makes us predisposed to these unhealthy habits. And I think it says to the community, right? You are this kind of people. Or there's something deficient in your community that leads you to these outcomes. And then what does it do to non-Malays? It reaffirms stereotypes about the community. So rather than think about, oh, what are the structural factors that concentrate Malays in the lower socioeconomic income brackets? What are other factors like maybe working in jobs with long shifts or not having access and time to prepare healthy foods that might lead certain communities to various health outcomes that might not be optimal. The human brain is such that cognitive shortcuts are easier to latch onto rather than thinking about, hey, wait a minute, take a step back. What are the social factors that impacted this person's life that led them to this hospital bed? So in a clinical encounter, you have limited time. <laughs> You're always told to hurry up the consultation or like you have 10 other patients to finish on this round, right? Do you have the time? Like, and when faced with a patient, maybe with diabetes and are displaying what is usually seen as not health-optimizing behaviors, do you have the time to think about the complexities that made up this person's life? Or is it easier because you are in a time crunch to attribute it to the person? It's easier to stereotype a certain group than to think about, hey, what are the nuances that make up the social determinants of health? And as somebody who is now in public health, you really start to see the impact of these cognitive shortcuts on how patients or patient groups or a particular population are viewed. A lot of the papers that I've seen in Singapore that tries to tackle the issue of ethnicity or race or talk about the Malay community, they've have a quantitative study design and some data that shows that the Malay community is highest in a particular outcome that they've designed. Rather than think about the social determinants of health and intersection of these determinants in the community's health, they default to stereotypes like, oh, their religion makes them think like that. Or, oh, their laziness to engage in physical exercise makes them think like that. Or makes them behave like that. It's honestly very saddening and very hurtful as a minority who's already existing in a space that might not be designed for you, to read journal articles that talks about the deficiency of your community. And it really makes you think about how many of the research teams actually have minority members in the team to help to contextualize or understand the nuances of the findings. More often than not, when you start to look at the authors, the list of authors, they don't have minority members. 
you know, it's an ecosystem, right? Research informs practice. Practice informs research design. Who gets grants? Who gets to run the studies? Who provides the framing for how these studies are interpreted? It all fits into each other in this ecosystem. And that's something I hope to problematize more as a minority scholar working in this space. Absolutely. I mean, in my medical school class, there were very, very few Malay Muslim people. I would say I can count them on probably one or two hands. You know, something that I also think about is that it is actually important to recognize that there are differences in race outcomes. It is true that statistically speaking, there are higher rates of non-communicable diseases in ethnic minorities. But it sounds to me that the issue is like, why are we framing things in a certain way? You know, I was looking at the National Population Health Survey, which publishes the prevalences of diseases in our population. And there's this table where they put things like age, social economic status, income, blah, blah, blah. And race is one of the factors as well. And it's always just interesting to me. Why is race seen as so special, right? Like, why isn't it given as a factor by itself, why isn't race seen together with these other factors and how they intersect? So I guess, could you tell us a bit more about why you feel like this issue is particularly important in health? First off, to get to your earlier point about the collection of race-based data, right? it's a double-edged sword. Because on one hand, you can see that being of a certain ethnicity does predispose to certain health outcomes in a society like Singapore. And you need that data to prove that there's health inequities. But at the same time, it can be very easily weaponized against certain groups, as we have seen, when you adopt cultural deficiency narratives about the community. That's the danger of it. You know, we always talk about protective factors in health. So how do we protect ourselves against the effect of racism, right? And saying racism is not accusatory. I think it's something that's really hard to explain in Singapore and that's something that I also am in the process of learning and unlearning that when you talk about racism there's a difference between accusing somebody or accusing a whole community of being racist versus arguing that there are racist tendencies baked into our policies and these are more insidious forms of racism like institutional racism that might not be malicious People don't wake up and, well, I hope most people don't wake up and say, today I'm going to be racist towards somebody. Most of us don't. Most doctors, nurses, social workers don't wake up and be like, today I'm going to be racist towards 10 patients. People don't come out and just decide that, hey, I want to be racist. But because of the nature in which institutional racism, for example, has been reflected through our system, is simple things like where our hospitals located, who have access to these hospitals, who has more in their MediSafe accounts, who can afford to pay for medical life or cashier life premiums, right? Um, when it comes to needing surgery or preventive care like screening, who has access to screening? And I was reading a paper where they talk about like how some people who are on the lower socioeconomic income bracket do not want to go for screening because they know that even if they find out something from screening, right, it's not as if they have the resources to do anything about it. So if you are to blame a particular community for not going for screening without understanding the, the resources that are needed to address the issues that crop up in screening, then you might just see it as laziness or unwillingness to go for screening. Rather than the, the fact that they do not have the resources to address the issues that crop up in screening. 
it gives you a different perspective on the same issue, right? The end outcome is the same. Particular groups don't go for screening. But the way that you view those groups are very different and it reframes your thinking, right? But that requires an extra step. And I wonder why it requires an extra step. And I wish it didn't. I wish that everybody learns about social determinants of health, whether it's in medical training, in nursing training, or in social work training, you know, basically anybody who comes into contact with patients. And we are normalized into thinking about, hey, what are the social determinants that makes up a patient's experience that might lead to certain decisions? I'm an advanced care planning trained facilitator. And a very good example of this is during the training, many of the issues that we talk about has got to do with, oh, how a particular community or how a particular religion impacts end-of-life decision-making or end-of-life preferences. Ironically, I had to go through the same process myself with my own family just this past December. And I felt that very quickly, because of the hyper-awareness of culture, the conversation very quickly turned into what my religion would say about X. And my preferences for CPR is conditioned by my religion. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. I didn't bring religion to this. But how come you assume that it's religion? So... In a way, right, the awareness of culture became a negative thing rather than a positive thing. Which is why at the end of my chapter, I talk about culturally competent approaches. And again, with the caveat that culturally competent approaches have also been criticised. And as I found out recently through my own training, because of the idea that nobody can ever be truly competent in another culture, I get that criticism and I accept it. But I think in Singapore, right, being culturally competent is about being aware of another community, but also being aware that that's just one facet of that person's identity, right? So being culturally competent is not ascribing everything to culture. Oh, they are Malays, that's why they behave like that. Oh, they are Indians, that's why they behave like that. Oh, they are Chinese, that's why they behave like that. There's so much heterogeneity within each specific community. You understand that people are different, but that nuance gets easily lost when you start stereotyping or think about a particular group in a population level. Oh, they must all be like that. So that's the big contradiction that I hope more people are aware of. That might truly be the real change that happens. And I feel like sometimes people ask me, so which is more important, changing the top or changing the bottom? You know, like, which where should change happen the most? I feel like it should be simultaneous. And if the top is not progressing enough, the bottom needs to progress faster in order to change the top, right? Because the sentiments on the ground also determine what kind of policies are being structured or shaped, or what kinds of framing are being applied to particular communities. So there needs to be pushback. And the pushback maybe begins with you, but on a structural and systemic level. I don't think individual level is enough. Like You can have one doctor who is more conscious, but is that enough of you to actually exert pressure on the system to make significant changes? I mean, I guess that's why we're having this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) to build awareness among healthcare workers, right? Yeah. I feel like that framing that racism is baked into our policies and is baked into our system is very helpful because sometimes when I try to talk about race with my own colleagues, the conversation gets shut down quite quickly. It's not a personal attack. It's just the raising awareness of certain behaviours that we have grown to be seen as normal. Lah. yeah. And the National Population Health Survey has this part on cancer screening rates. So I think it's great that you brought that up because the thing that I was quite shocked to see when I read that National Population Health Survey was that while the rates of cardiovascular diseases are maybe like single digit or the low tens between the ethnic groups, 
the rates of cancer screening are actually vastly different. And going back to the point about being hyper-aware of culture and assuming that this culture means a certain preference for ACP discussions is also inaccurate. Some people might think like, oh, you know, maybe Malay Muslim women are just like more conservative. So they don't want to show their breasts or they don't want to do cervical cancer screening. But actually that's not true because colorectal cancer screening rates are also equally low. And there's also a vast difference between the ethnic groups. And so for me as a healthcare provider, I also think about how is it that we are communicating and building this relationship with ethnic minorities on a broader scale, like what you were mentioning, right? How does it engender trust? Since we are on this topic, one thing that I, when I read your paper, I thought it was like a brilliant example, right? It was about what cultural competency really means. So one of the examples that you brought up was Both Sides Now, which is an organization that you volunteer with. And that the example of a coffin isn't really helpful in bringing end-of-life discussions to the Malay Muslim community because coffins are not used. Lah. So if we do not design programs that are specific for a certain ethnic group, then we are missing out on this communication aspect. So maybe you can tell us a bit more about what you think we can do then in terms of culturally competence. Mm -hmm. So the first part of your question on screening and why it's so different. I recently came across a paper from Public Health School in Singapore. It basically came up with this scale and one of it is called Punishing Allah Reappraisal to talk about how the fear of religion actually impedes screening. So one of the variables that they mention is PMIR, or they call it punishing Allah reappraisal. And it talks about how cancer as a punishment from God made it such that people were more unlikely to go for screening because they see it as like having cancer is like fatal. It's a punishment from God and therefore it's not something that should be actively sought out to be treated. And I was really affected when I read the paper. I was just sitting with that for a while and thinking, who would be okay with getting breast cancer? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? It's not something that you would be like okay with, but it's more like once you get breast cancer, people have multiple ways of rationalizing why they got this particular illness. But keeping it as a variable... And then using it to justify why Muslim women or Malay Muslim women don't go for screening is extremely problematic to me because how do you come to that conclusion? You have interpersonal barriers, you have structural barriers. That means there is some nuance in the formation of the scale, right? In understanding that there are interpersonal and structural barriers that might affect women. But how come when it comes to a minority group, you default? to their religion, to explain why they don't want to go for screening. Look at the way in which the whole study was conceptualized. It's deductive and inductive. It's trying to explain why a certain group had a certain outcome based on a hypothesis. Rather than understanding from their perspective, even though they call it a mixed method sequential study, Imagine if minority scholars like myself come across this and immediately, instinctively, you can tell, hey, something was wrong. How can you come up with such a skill as punishing Allah reappraisal? That doesn't sound right. And you can use all the statistics you want to justify this, 
But I think for many of us, the instinct is like, hmm, really? Like, afraid of punishment from God that makes you not want to go for mammography? And to get back to your earlier point about colorectal cancer, yeah, so if you want to use religion as an example, then what about like colorectal cancer screening? There's something that doesn't add up. How come in certain areas, you can easily default to the deficiency of the culture, but in other areas, you abstract and look at it as like, oh, okay, so it's a cost issue. These are the structural barriers. The cost of going for screening is high. And to bring up the earlier point that I mentioned, like those from low socioeconomic income brackets, even if they go for screening, what's the point? Because you don't have the resources to address issues that come up in screening, right? How come we can be selective about that? So that's just one contradiction that's really glaring for me. And then we juxtapose it with the example that you just brought up, coffin and designing culturally competent programs. The line might be not clear for some people, but for me, it's really clear. There's a difference between something like the Kita Dah Cukup Manis campaign or Dada Itu Haram campaign and an approach that appreciates and tries to design culturally competent programming that is geared towards a particular community. So if you build a program and then you assume there's some deficiency about a particular community that needs to be addressed, therefore you take the deficiency narrative and design a program around it. However, what we try to do with the programming for two sites now is to approach the community from a needs-based perspective. So community members describing what they need. So yeah, the Both Sides Now program is basically an arts-based program that engages the community in thinking and talking about end-of-life issues and issues related to death. I was a volunteer with them for about three years. One of the feedback that they had received and which I had also given as a member of the minority is that minority engagement with the program was low and they were trying to think about how do we increase minority participation. And you can see how when thinking about the issue and you frame the issue, it's very easy to see it from the cultural deficiency narrative. Oh yeah, they don't want to make efforts to calm down or they are very lazy. They don't want to talk about these issues. It's very easy to do that, but we should really challenge ourselves to look away from that and approach the community from what is it about this programming that's not catering to the needs of the community. So, it's the same issue, lower minority participation in this X program. But the way you approach it, right, is entirely different. Rather than thinking about it as a deficiency, you start thinking about what is it about your programs or what is it about your policies that are not meeting the needs of a particular community. And then you start from the community in establishing their needs. Then you go up higher, you establish needs first, and then you design a program around those needs. Rather than having a hypothesis about the deficiency of a particular community, it's a very big difference. It might seem not so evident, but the approach that you take can significantly affect the outcomes. So, And one of the things I talked about in the chapter was about how when you understand the needs of a particular community, right? we saw non-Malay audience members being able to connect with the issues that are being presented, even though they are from the lens of the Malay community. Because the issues are universal. The cultural nuances make it different, yes. But if you manage to present it in a way that is authentic to the needs of a particular community, people who are non-Malays or non-ethnic minority groups can connect with the issues because they are able to see, they are able to formulate the same issue through the lens of their own cultural nuances. 
So the idea, right, is to be authentic in your approach. Your understanding of a particular community does not come from stereotypes, but for example, from understanding what are the issues or the interconnectedness of the issues that form a particular community's approach towards death and dying. And and if you manage to do a good job, other people can instantly see the connections. You don't have to pedantically tell them, no, this is how your community thinks about death. The most striking example for me is called Kata Kata Kita. The version of the program that was streamed online, still on YouTube now, Kata Kata Kita. It was a drama that was created from the findings of the research report that we did with the community. Both sides now created like a real drama talking about ACP or end of life issues. And an audience member who is not Malay just stood up and shared her experience of doing it with her mom. And she's not from a Malay community, but the issues cut across, and you're able to connect because the issue that was presented in the drama was done in as culturally competent a manner as possible, rather than defaulting to stereotypes. It makes a big difference. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I think that is interesting that you bring out this terminology needs-based assessment because I feel like if you didn't use that terminology, right, the assumption would be that a culture-centered approach in our simplistic thinking would just mean that you can speak the language of the person that you are communicating with. But but what you're trying to say, it's so much more than that, right? It's not just cosmetic. It's truly needs-based and that is universal, lah. Different people come from different cultural backgrounds, but the issues that we face can cut across. The basis of how you're coming to this shouldn't be based on stereotypes or assumptions about the community. They are like this, therefore they believe this. No. The approach you bring to the clinical encounter, the approach you bring when you meet a client in social work settings. What are some of the assumptions that you can challenge yourself with before even talking or meeting the patient or client when you're reviewing the notes maybe before you see the patient or the client right what are your own biases stereotypes assumptions that have been baked into how you do you consciously think about it or is it just something that's like no no i'm just seeing a patient or some people default to i don't see race i don't see race no, everyone sees race, especially in a hyper-racialized society like Singapore, right? Even when you don't see race, it's up here. And it's got to do with thinking about how have I been conditioned to think in this way? What other possible interpretations might be possible for this patient that might be in my head that I need to challenge before I meet this particular person? Yeah. I do a lot of field work and when I used to get like a particular profile, now that I'm training, right, I start to realize that, hey, I myself make certain assumptions about certain people that I'm going to meet because of the social situation in which I brought up. And so it's not meant to be accusatory. Right? It's not like, oh, 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 you are racist. It's so hard to really communicate this. And I think that's why so many people are so resistant to this conversation around race because they feel like, oh, if I think about racism, then I need to confront my own racism. Or I need to confront how I might have been conditioned to think about a certain group of communities in racist ways. And saying that doesn't mean that you're a bad person. Recognizing how our social upbringing or our education or just how we've been taught to operate might contain some racist assumptions about certain groups doesn't mean that you're a bad person. And I think the inability to separate this it's what's causing a lot of people to be scared to engage in this discussion because who likes to feel that you are a racist? But if you understand it from a structural perspective, if you can understand how the structure might predispose you to a certain way of thinking about a certain community, 
then I feel that that might be a useful entry point for many people to sit with it and think about, hey, how have I been conditioned to think about race or a certain community in this way? And why? And hopefully when enough of us do this, then we push for structural change or changes at the level of structure or policy happens when many of us start to become more aware of how we've been conditioned to think in certain ways or how does institutional racism look like within our respective institutions that we are operating in. I mean, I think this is a difficult thing to ask someone to do, right? To give some context. I guess for me, it's when I try to have conversations about race as well. Lah. Like even as a person from the majority race, having these discussions with other colleagues who are from the majority race, and like they don't even see it as an issue, even though they bring up race all the time. Something that I am very, very conscious about is when we are talking about our patients when we round and we are presenting this case to our seniors, Personally, I don't think it's important to bring race up. So sometimes you'll be like, oh, Madam Tan is a 76-year-old Chinese female. I don't see how race is relevant in this situation. So I don't bring it up. And when I speak to medical students, I tell them, please just don't bring it up unless it's really, really relevant. And I know we didn't plan for this question, but just to push you, I guess, how do you scale up the fact that people will have these kind of conversations or kind of like interrogate their own biases? I mean, that's part of what we do here at Third Space. We want people to start to think about it. But there's also that issue where we preach to people who are already kind of conscious of social issues, right? Yeah, since you're pushing me to think... Outside, right? I'm also pushing back on a statement that you made, which is that it's hard to think about these issues. Is it we? We already exist in such a hyper-racialized society. Like our public holidays are structured around the different ethnic groups. Our spaces are very hyper-racialized. And we are one of the most religiously diverse nations in the world, right? Is it so difficult to think about the differences that distinguish us? but also the similarities that connect us. Something we were trying to think about when we were embarking on the research for Both Sides Now program was to think about similarities within differences. What are the similarities within these differences that connect us? So I think some of these binaries really have to be dismantled when we think about people who are different from us. But dismantling doesn't mean you don't appreciate the cultural nuances, right? But it goes back to like, do you think about differences in terms of how am I different from somebody? Or how, despite the fact that we are different, the values that we hold can be similar. And how do we understand somebody who is different from us and the values that they hold in relation to ourselves? So for example, let's give clinical encounter decision. Maybe like a patient rejects a treatment that you as a doctor would think, hey, that's so obvious. Why wouldn't you want to do that? But when you take the time to clarify those values, the decision made by the family might make sense. And I say this from personal experience because I've been a caregiver for 13 years now. And the best doctors I've come across, right, are those who take the time to understand as a family, when we're making decisions and understand us in non-judgmental ways. And you can tell, right? Especially if you've been with multiple comorbidities, I've probably seen many, many different kinds of specialists. The best kind of doctors, right, are those who start from values before the actual decision that needs to be made when it comes to certain interventions that they're trying to promote or push against. 
Do you have time to clarify values? It can be as simple as asking, so what are your values when making this decision? And then just taking the time to understand that, right? Rather than have coming in with assumptions like, oh, these patients are from a particular group, therefore they will make these kind of decisions. And that doesn't have to be a long drawn-out process. I feel like that patient-centered approach, right? You know, it just reminded me of this paper that the Savia Kaur, who was also a guest on our podcast, wrote. She graduated from NUS School of Communications and New Media. Um, basically, she did this PhD and the title of the paper is called Community-Based Heart Health Intervention, Culture-Centered Study of Low-Income Malays and Heart Health Practices. And I think something that you kept saying was that people actually want to be healthy, right? Like, People know that sugar is bad for them. And people know that smoking is bad for them. You don't have to tell them that. So her PhD was basically working with low-income Malay Muslim community in like a one-room HDB flat setting. And she started that research project off with community discussions, you know, like why do you think that you guys have poorer health outcomes? And in all these discussions, like what you said, they know that they have poor outcomes. But there are certain things that they brought up, like, I just do not know what the actual healthier alternative to sugar is. Or some of the times, sugar's not even the real question. Or do I have question. access to healthier alternatives than sugar, right? Exactly. Um, and one of the things that came up was that healthier food is not just food with less sugar. It also has to be food that people actually want to eat. Many of the participants brought out that the heart-healthy recipes or the food must have the so-called Malay flavor. Like It actually has to taste like something that they want or something that they would eat at home. So some of the things that they brought out is like belacan, which is not sugar, but it is Malay flavor. But how do you make food with belacan healthier as well? So I think the idea of empowering the person who is in charge of their own health is really important. And that's what they tried to do in this intervention as well. So together, they built recipes or create posters that spoke to them and spoke to other people within that context. And actually featured their own residents who lived in that community. Yeah, I've seen that booklet, that recipe booklet. So to push the point a little bit, rather than telling people to modify recipes to become healthier, right? Actually, if you were to go back to before this capitalist society makes people default to certain food types, right? Food types that's available in like hawker centers, for example. The actual Malay diet, you're not supposed to eat rendang and lemak every day. You're not supposed to. It'll be too rich. You eat things like rendang on special occasions. So again, rather than seeing it as a deficiency in terms of, oh, how does your recipe need to be modified? But rather, how do you support people to go back to the original diet that we were already on? So for my late grandma, ulam or vegetables were a huge part of her diet. Fish was a huge part of her diet. Just because Singapore is coastal, right? So eating fish would be more common than eating beef. Or chicken every day. But what do we have available in NTUC that's accessible, right? It's chicken, it's beef, it's lamb, it's this kind of meat that has come to dominate the market. So having the time to go to a wet market or having access to vegetables that are that formed part of the Malay diet has become harder because of the economy and how certain produce becomes normalized or dominant in a supermarket. For example, canned food that's fast, that's convenient, that's cheap, becomes cheaper than fresh vegetables. So again, it's about access and it's about helping the community to go back 
to the previous diets and not approaching it from a, okay, how do we tell the community to be healthier? So one study that really, really jolted me on exercise and movement found that Malay males were the lowest in terms of exercise. But imagine if you had just come from like a 12 to 14 hour shift where you're on your feet as a security guard or when you're on your feet as a manual uh, laborer, right? Do you really want to go and exercise in the park? So it's about the nature of jobs that this community has access to, right? Walking in the park or in the reservoir on a Saturday or Sunday is very much a privileged thing. And if you've spent the bulk of your day in a manually intensive job, do you really want to go and exercise? So it's, again, it's about framing, right? Do Malay men exercise less or are they concentrated in industries where they already expend a lot of energy and therefore do not have time or even the inclination to expend more energy in exercising? But along with spending long hours in jobs that are manually intensive, coping mechanisms come in. For example, smoking or craving certain foods that give you a very quick hit in your brain, like sugar, right? It give you a very quick hit of happiness or satiation. So again, it's about going back to developing recipes or developing access to ingredients where people can make the choices that they need to make for their health. So certain vegetables that my mother even talks about, like my late grandma used to eat, it's no longer, they're no longer available in the market. But given a choice, that's something that, that they would prefer. But that's just not become part of our everyday now, just because of the reality of what's available in the supermarkets. So, you know, going back to the National Population Health Survey, something that struck out to me, right, is that they asked participants, like, what is the reason why they smoke? And the highest reason by far is that they are stressed about things. And then in the second section, they look at what is the rates of smoking among the ethnicities. And the rates of smoking were the highest among Malay people. And to me, it's like, why are we not making these connections, right? Is that they are all within the same paper. If we can say that rates of smoking are higher because they have, they have higher levels of stress, then why aren't we drawing this correlation that maybe people smoke not purely out of choice, but as a coping mechanism to greater stress levels that they face? Yeah. So let's end off with any last things you want to share with our listeners. No, precisely that. And that's what we've been circling around this whole discussion, right? The data is already there, but it's how you choose to frame it and the cognitive shortcuts that you take in getting to the framing. And a lot of people say that, oh, people who work in this space or people who come from minorities are so defensive. I mean, who would it be, right? If you wake up and then you read headlines like your community is the unhealthiest and that's because of your diet. As if there's no unhealthy food in Chinese diets too. In all diets, right? But what predisposes or what pushes one community towards a certain diet? And as you elegantly put in your example, if you exist in a community which historically has been shown to be economically marginalized in a society that is dependent on your economic output, and therefore you turn to unhealthy methods of coping or that's all that you have access to and then you tell people in this already limited space of happiness that they have such terrible behavior you need to change it what does it do to a person hope you enjoyed the episode and look forward to the second part of our interview with hazira where we discuss health equity at large and her take on what patient-centered preventive care model looks like